God is always doing something. We've got this like image of God that he's like this old gray-bearded father-time guy that sits back on a recliner. Uh, it's probably a Steelers recliner, but he's sitting there on his recliner in heaven just kind of watching the days go by. But there's no truth to that because God is active, he's alive, and he's among us. And so before I really get into my sermon this morning, I want to ask Ed Glover to come on up here real quick. Um, and this has nothing to do with last night. Uh, but every now and then, there's some really amazing things that just can't be explained that happen. And so I'm not going to be able to do it justice. So I'm just going to ask Ed, what's going on with you and your family these days? Yeah, uh, my son Jonathan, many of you know, in October 5th of this year, he got a fever and then he started throwing up. It never stopped. Continued to throw up. We went to Allegheny General Hospital, Passivin, ended up at Children's. And he just continued to throw up. And uh, he lost about 38 pounds. And the doctors didn't know what the problem was. He, we, we continued to pray that the Lord would show us, either heal him or reveal to us the problem. And finally he revealed that Jonathan could eat any kind of food except he could not drink water. Anything with any kind of liquid he would throw up. So we went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and finally, last week, we went into Children's Hospital. I'm talking about the best doctors. Now, those are three very large hospitals in Pittsburgh. And he said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Glover, we can't do anything for you. Now, I don't know if you've ever been there where you think that you, you don't have any options. And then the doctor said, you have one option. You can go down to Cincinnati or over to Cleveland Clinic, and they have a research group there because we've never heard of what the problem with Jonathan is. We, we, don't know how to, we don't know how to diagnose that. Well, as we've been praying, and many of you have been praying for us, the Lord began to lead my wife, Tammy, to go to a place where there's a gift in healing. Now, we had myself lay hands on him, uh, pastors here prayed for him. We're clearly we, not spiritual enough. We're, we're not yeah. spiritual enough. And we prayed for healing for him. But I think Jamie and I would say this. God has used us at times to heal people. Just like God has used you to bring people to Christ when you share the gospel. In a witness. But there are men and women who have a gift in evangelism. For, for example, John Guest, who was here for years. So when you're praying for somebody and you bring bring them in front of that particular person who has that particular gift, it's amazing how many people come to Christ when he's preaching or they're preaching. So Tammy and I thought, let's go to a place where... So Tammy checked this place out. And she went and she watched. So last... This Saturday, yesterday, we took Jonathan to the place and a lady, must have been in her 60s or 70s, just walked by and laid her hands on Jonathan and prayed for him and continued on. So then we took Jonathan, my wife did, to the restaurant afterwards, and he said, well, let me try to sip. I'm, I'm telling you, folks, he would sip a little bit of water, and he would throw up within three to five minutes. So he took a little sip of the water, and nothing happened. So he took some more. And then he ended up drinking the whole glass of water. We waited for another hour and a half, and he drank another glass. Waited for a couple more hours, and he drank another glass. And then Jonathan, who had a feeding tube in his throat, he said, I don't need this anymore. And he took the feeding tube, and he pulled it out of his throat, and he drank another glass of water. 
Praise God. I texted him and I said, you got to get here because I'm giving this testimony. I don't think he's here yet. But if you see Jonathan Glover and you watch him in these weeks to come, no matter if he drinks today and he throws up, I am saying to us, and I don't believe that. I believe that he won't. But I'm saying this. It is a bona fide, without a shadow of a doubt, miracle. So guess what? As Jamie preaches to you today and he talks to you about what he's going to say, know this. If you've got a problem today, if you have a problem, you're a candidate for a miracle. That's right. If you're praying, that's all that means. God is a God who has the power to change our lives. Amen? To him be the glory. That's to right. him be the glory. Let's take a moment and pray. And uh, I'll work on the miracle of punctuation in JB's life. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, God is really good. And, you know, I, I, I get to spend some time with JB. And, you know, just a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to see a young guy given hope like that. And to take a faith step to pull that feeding tube out. And let's just pray because that's all I can do right now. Father God, we love you and we thank you. And, and Lord, as you have just, um, your will is, is supreme, God. And we, we submit to your will in our lives. And sometimes, God, it's your will to, to use us in a miracle. And we pray, God, that in JB's life that you would continue to work a miracle. Thank you for the faith that he demonstrated by pulling that tube out and drinking water, God. And uh, we pray that you would continue to work in his life. And thank you for this family. Thank you for this ministry. And it's just so, so awesome to see you dwelling amongst us, God. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And thank you. Thank you for your prayers. You know, it's, it's funny because um, a couple of years ago, I remember um, the Glovers had gone over to Qatar and Ed was helping with a family member over there, and Josh had, had broken a bone in, in his clavicle area, and similar story. It's like a family tradition for you and your family to have faith, get really extremely messed up with something, and then God show up in a big way. It's amazing. I, I love that. And, and that has everything to do with what we're talking about this morning, because all the time in our lives, we've got these family traditions that we have. Maybe it's messing yourself up and getting healed, but Cougar, come here real quick. I do have a brother. His name is Cougar. His mother didn't love him. It's his real name. He doesn't know what I'm about to say, and I just, I just want to demonstrate something to you about family traditions. Give me a hug. Just give me a hug. Okay. Point in case. Go sit down. In the Kendrew family, when we hug as men, we do the pat-pat waddle-waddle. He didn't know I was going to say that. Notice, pat, pat, waddle, waddle. It was the way we brought up. In my household, unless you were beating the tar out of somebody, you never said, I love you or anything like that. You beat him up, and it's like, oh, he loves me. All right? But then, once in a while, there was the pat, pat, hug, hug, waddle, waddle. Okay? And that's how we knew we loved each other. I had these uncles that I grew up with. that They loved to take me hunting and fishing, and they passed that tradition on to me. But there was this thing at our hunting camp, and I can't explain why we did this. The guys are weird. Uh, there was a behind of a deer taxidermied on the wall. And, and what was said amongst our family tradition was that the first year you went to the hunting camp, you had to kiss that object. <laughs> then after I did it, I was told I was the only one who ever has. <clears throat> So you sit there and judge me. Go ahead. 
But the truth of the matter is, is we all have these unique family traditions, these rites of passage. I, I love participating in this one. There's men in this church, and there's men, there's Christian men who will do this for their sons, that when they reach a certain age, they walk them through this process of what it means to be a man. And they, and they bring these guys into their lives, and then they present them with this sword, and it's just like this awesome, like, mm, I'm a man thing. But it, it's, a, it's a rites of passage. It's a tradition that, that these guys go through in their families. And every one of you in this auditorium, you have these weird things in your family that you do, don't you? These, these little family traditions. Anybody have a weird family tradition that they're afraid to talk about in here? You have to raise your hand. You're all liars, okay? You do. And what's awesome about that is it's who we are. Our traditions, the way that we were raised in our families, whether good or bad, these moments have steered us into being partly who we are today. My uncles played a huge part in my life. And the traditions and the way that they taught me to be a man have spilled over to this day. And so this morning, what we're going to talk about in our scripture passages, this is amazing to me, because I will get 17 passages of of scripture, and I'll have like four pages of notes. I have one scripture passage that I've got 24 pages of notes on this morning that we're going to get through. Probably not. But I'll do my best. But Paul is handing to to Timothy this this bit of knowledge, this tradition. And he says something that is so powerful and so bold that if we don't digest it fully, we could really miss what he's saying about being a family this morning. We're in our Christmas series now. And in the the Christmas season, a lot of us will go home. A lot of you college students will go home. And you'll experience clean sheets for the first time in months that your mom laid out for you. There may even be clean socks. That's it. You know what I'm talking about. In college, nothing's clean. There's the I already wore it and can still wear it pile. Uh, and it definitely needs wash pile. But we have these family traditions and we're, we, we belong to these, these families. We bear, I bear the last name Kendrew. You bear the last name fill in the blank. But there's something that we all have in common by being here this morning should bear and that's the name of Christ, the name of little Christ, Christian. Let's get into the word. This is 1 Timothy 3, uh, 14 through 16. And in a moment, I'm going to go back because all of chapter 3 is, is gems of wisdom that, is, that are being handed off to Timothy. But I want to read this to you. It says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. When you think about this, it really tells us something. It it specifies on this whole house of the Lord thing. Now, let me ask you a question. Are we a community of believers here this morning? We are. We're a community of believers with the people across the hall in the other sanctuary. We're a community of, community of believers with the people that skipped church this morning. We're a community that come here. We're a community of believers with the people that came to the 9 o'clock services. We're a community of believers. And what we're being told in this passage of Scripture is that, um, that Paul says, As if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. What is the house of God? The house of God is not this cool stage. The house of God is not these walls. It's not the downstairs. It's not any building. The house of God is the organic living beings that follow him. 
the house of God, the church, is us. And what he's telling us here is that we are part of the household of God. In the the original text, when he's using that verbiage of household of God, it's not saying community. It is saying something so much more than that. It's saying we are the dwelling place of God. You and I. Not this room. You and I. And that has some weight to it. So here we see that we belong to a household. By calling us the household of God, he's saying, you're my family. He's not just simply saying, you hang out in my house as a servant. You don't get to come cut my grass. He's saying, you're an adopted member of this family. Your last name may be Kendrew, but to, to me, it's, it's Jesus. You're, you're part of my Christ. You're my little Christ. You're, you're my little adopted son, and you belong in my house. It says in John that he is there preparing a place for us. Just like when we come home from college and mom has put clean sheets on our bed and socks that won't stand up by themselves, we come home. God has gone to prepare a place for those who love his son Jesus. So we're a part of the household of God. Not only are we a part of the household of God, it says this. It says, if I delay, you may, uh, excuse me. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It says this. It says we belong in the house of God. It says that our God, our living God, not not a dead God, God, our living God, dwells with us. The reason why that story is so relevant to today, because it shows us God is still with us. God is in this room in this very moment. Now, it's not God's will for everybody to be healed. But God does have a will for us. God's house is not a house with a deadbeat dad. My father was a deadbeat dad. My God is my father. My real father in heaven is always there for me. He is alive. He dwells in a house preparing a place for me to come home to. He is home in me, and I will be in home in him. I am part of the family of God. I was adopted into that family when I accepted the fact that his son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins. He sent Jesus from heaven to find me. How cool is that? And and, and you can substitute the word me for me because he didn't only just do that for me, he did that for you. He sent Jesus, and I think sometimes we get this idea that he just created Jesus out of some clay and sent sent him on his way. But I mean, Jesus left perfection for this, for you. Because you're that significant in the eyes of God. He wants you to be a part of his family. He invited you to be part of his household. He is not a deadbeat dad who is not there. He is alive and well. He asks us as his children, just as I ask my children, get along with one another. Love each other. How ridiculous would it be, parents, if you told your kids, well, you know what? Jimmy, you like things a little bit differently than Tony over here. So you know what? Why don't you guys just go your separate ways and do your own things? Never associate. Never do anything together. But, you know, once in a while, come to dinner with everybody. That's not how the body of God is supposed to be. If we are the housing of God, if we are the dwelling place of God, if we are his children, we have got to look at the church down the road as our brothers and sisters because we're a household who has a living father in it. 
The church is not these walls. I have gone to Kenya. I've gone to Quebec. It's a country of its own. I've gone to all kinds of different places where I have hooked up with Christians whom I've never met in my entire life, but I never felt more at home with them. Do you know why? Because they're my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And in the house of God, we should be able to get along with one another. We may not always see eye to eye, but if we believe in the one true Jesus, and we say we believe we are who we say we are, we should be able to go to any place, any nation. I, I love going to Kenya and meeting these people for the first time that had different skin color than me. They spoke differently than me. They had different bank accounts than me. And we were one family. In the house of God, there is no one greater than God. Underneath God, we're all the same. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't care if you're the CEO or the no-go-to-work guy, okay? In the house of God, we're all equals. I don't care if you're black, white, green, Asian, whatever. We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. I love this little, this little thing I found. It says, the house of the Lord is bigger than any one person's agenda. It transcends race, ethnicity. It doesn't know language barriers. No government can control it, and false teachers cannot stop it. And it's telling us in this little one section of Scripture that you and I are brothers and sisters of Christ, that we are part of the household of God, that we have a live, living, loving Father who is not a deadbeat dad, who is there for us. And that he wants us to be engaged in that family. He continues on by saying this. And this is where we're going to get pretty heavy in a couple of minutes. He says, If I delay, you know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, if you remember where Paul's writing these letters from, it's from Ephesus. In Ephesus, there's one of these things called the seven wonders of the world. You've probably heard of them. You've probably referred to yourself as the eighth at a moment or time. I'm the eighth wonder of the world. You've probably heard that before. But there's this thing called the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis is, is, is an architectural marvel in its day. It had these hundreds, a hundred of, of these 60-foot ionic pillars that surrounded this, this, this courtyard. And above it was this solid marble roof. Now, I don't know if you know anything about stones and architecture and wood and, and, and the weight of that stuff. Marble is a heavy, heavy material. That, that, that represents in this scripture passage the truth. And at the top of the temple of Artemis, it stands above all the architecture in its day. It was a marvel. It was a wonder. And, and on top of that was this solid marble roof. Those pillars are supporting some intense, intense weight. And so when Paul, writing from Ephesus, looking at this temple, says these words, he's saying, you, the family of God, you, the pillars of God, you are to uphold truth. You are the church. You are the brothers and sisters of Christ. And he's saying, Timothy, I write these things to you because as the children of God, we have to stand for truth. And they took this very seriously. You look at all of chapter 3, and it talks about the qualifications for a leader. This is some intense life standard right here. And I would like to tell you that we as a church hold to these standards. Let me read this to you in chapter 3. It says, the saying is trustworthy. In verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or preacher or teacher or church leader, he desires a noble task. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. It doesn't mean we're perfect. He must be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Do you think that Timothy and Paul were having this exchange because he wants Timothy to belong to some kind of awesome gentry where they can walk around with their shoulders all puffed up? Or is it because he recognizes the weight of the truth in this book needs to be handled responsibly, intentionally, and on purpose? And that I, as a preacher, I'm held doubly accountable for the things that come out of this mouth to you. Now let me tell you, You're not getting off scot-free this morning. Because he's using this as an example. We all have a responsibility. If you claim the name Christ, if you claim to be a believer in God, you have a responsibility to be an equal as a pillar in that temple with me, with all the pastors on this staff. You have a greater opportunity as a church to do more for God than anybody from any of these pulpits. You have a responsibility to this truth. You have a responsibility to be who you say you are. And this morning, if you can look me and tell me that you are a little Christ, live it. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to fall. Church, if I screw up and I need to be held accountable, I'm asking for you to love me enough to tell me. I tell the students in the youth ministry that if you truly love somebody, you love them enough to tell them where their breath stinks. And that's true, isn't it? Nobody wants to hear your breath smells like sewer. But when you hear it, you're thankful for it, and you take a mint and fix it. Listen to me, sinners. I'm one too. When we mess up, we need to hear it. We need people to come alongside of us and strengthen us. The Bible tells us that we are to bear with one another's burdens. That's different then tolerate one another's burdens. If you truly love somebody, keeping them accountable can be the best thing we can do to strengthen this church. By loving people enough to come alongside of them when they're struggling with addiction or struggling with something. That's how God wants his children to love one another. He doesn't want us to simply go, oh, isn't this book great? And then go on our way and do our own thing. He's serious when he died on that cross for us. He wants us to live by this word. He wants us to obey this word. This isn't a book of do's and don'ts. This is a book of we win. Amen? This is not a book that confines us. It's a book that frees us. This book is designed to be like the temple of Artemis. It's supposed to sit higher than everything else. And we need to exalt it. And if you're my brother and sister in Christ, I need help. We need to hold up this truth. Do you know what this truth is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God's son came to earth from heaven and died for us. We're part of the house of God. We're born into that family name. But do you know how we get adopted by God? By Jesus. 
by the key of Jesus. Jesus is the key to the door. He's the door. He's the doorknob. He's everything about it. And I hate that analogy because that gives us an image that Jesus is sitting there waiting on us. No. Jesus left home in search of us. He's pursuing you. As screwed up and as messed up as we all are, Jesus left perfection for this, for you. Man, that's such a good message this morning, isn't it? I mean, that takes a lot of that weight off of our shoulders. He's simply saying to me, I want you to be willing to bear this message with your brothers and sisters. I love when my brother Cougar and I hang out. We get in the, we get, when we were kids, we got into so much trouble. But we were together. And as a family of believers, if we could all get on board with supporting this gospel message, understanding what we hold, understanding what was invested in us, the martyrs that came before, thousands of years before us that have died for this biblical truth of, of being a unified church, only submissive to Christ. The people that have died for that, and we get to in luxury celebrate our faith. We don't suffer, guys. I mean, we have things. We suffer. Let me, let me correct myself. Some of us go through stuff. But God has given us a unique place in history to be able to promote his gospel. I ask you this. Are you my brother? Are you my sister? Have you cried out to Christ and asked him to forgive you and to make you whole? Because if you have, you have a responsibility. God is not sitting there in his Steelers rocking chair watching from heaven. He's in and amongst us. And he doesn't want us to just sit and wait for our room. He wants us to go and be about the business of the gospel. I love this because Paul shares all this really intense stuff with Timothy in chapter 3, and he ends chapter 3 with this. You've got to understand, in this time period, like, like today, I think of uh, diets. People are looking for the quick fix on how to adjust their weight, right? I mean, P90X is not the quick fix, let me just tell you right now. I, I think that was developed by Satan. Um, <laughs> And as you can tell, I'm not doing it. But we look for these quick fixes. We look for this secret knowledge that if we have this secret knowledge, if we, if we just know the right food to eat in combination with the right blended recipe, that we'll, we'll all of a sudden be, be right. See, back in this time, back when, when the time Paul is writing this, they had that same attitude, but it wasn't about their weight. It was about religion. They're looking for this secret phrase, maybe, that they could say that would unlock all the secrets to the universe. There's this mystery about every religion on the planet. And I love what Paul says here at the end. He just simply says, great indeed. We confess is the mystery of, I keep want to say godly, godlessness. I, I heard Jared say it earlier, now I want to say it. But godliness. Great is the mystery. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. But then he goes on to say this. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up into glory. Do you know what the secret that everybody back in the day was looking for is? Do you know what the secret to everything is right now? It's actually not a secret. It's not a great big mystery. It's Jesus. Jesus. That's it. That's the ultimate Sunday school answer. We're just being told it's the key to everything in the world. I know that one. 
Let me tell you, we have a father who is not a deadbeat dad, who loves us, who's preparing a place for you. Who knows? Maybe your favorite little toy is on the shoulder, or maybe there's like a name on the door that says this is his room or her room. But God, the creator of the stars, the universe, is thinking of you, making your bed, preparing a place for you. He said, hey, Jesus, I want you to go down there and get so-and-so and tell them to come home. Doesn't that feel like Christmas to you? Come home for Christmas. Church, this Christmas, I don't know where you're at in your faith, but you are the dwelling place of God. Won't you be home for him? You are the wielder of a truth that can change forever. Do you get that this morning? Do you get what has been entrusted to us? Church, We are brothers and sisters. We may not always get along because we're siblings. But we have to love each other. After all, we are going to spend eternity together. (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Right? So we might as well start liking each other now. I pray you have a fantastic homecoming at Christmas. And I pray that, that over top of all the gifts and the tinsel and all that other stuff, that you really think about the true gift. One of the gifts that we receive from God is each other, this community. And ultimately, the best gift is Jesus. Why don't you pray with me? God, we love you and we thank you. You're so good. Wages of sin is death. We deserve hell. (laughs) But you gave us your perfect son instead. You said all who will cry out to me can enter the Father's house. Man, thank you for that, God. This morning, as we just get ready to come to supper at your table, we pray that you would help each one of us to recognize that you're at home in us and that we're at home in you. And other than that, we're foreigners, Lord, to every other thing in this world, to this world. We belong to you, Father. Amen.